Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. We were we were all stunned this week by the sudden passing of our dear brother Kyle Clumper, and uh, he was he was fine one minute and gone the next in about a minute's time. It should, it should remind us of the brevity of life, how fragile, fragile we are, and that our very breath is held in the hand of God. We all have an appointment, and Kyle had his this past week. The funeral will be on Tuesday at, uh, visitation at 10, funeral at 11, here at the church, and, um, so, those of you that are able, try to support the family and show your love to them. I'll miss I'll miss Kyle. He was uh, he was a special guy. Well, I'll ask you to turn with me to John chapter six. We are making our progress through this uh, gospel, and we've come to chapter six. One of my favorite chapters. Uh, along with chapter 10, chapter 17, uh, because they all, all of these chapters, well, the whole book really, but these chapters specifically seem to deal with God's sovereignty and His His work, His work in salvation. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I love it so much. Who would not want God to be in charge of our salvation? I mean, if we were in charge of it, we'd never find it. <laughs> we wouldn't want it. We wouldn't think about it. It's God that, that's in charge of that. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. But not until we have gone through these first two miracles that are mentioned here in the book. So let's read together uh, from John chapter 6 through verse 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much As they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up 
the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As we come to the sixth chapter of John's gospel and the narrative that he gives us here about the feeding of all of these people there by the seaside, we see the words after this in verse 1. After this, which gives us an interval of time. It does not mean that the events of chapter 6 happened immediately after those of chapter 5. In fact, uh, they did not happen immediately after. Uh, Could have been an interval here of possibly between 6 to 12 months after the events of chapter 5. This is, this, Jesus is now in two years into his ministry. He is in his Galilean ministry, which is about two years or so, and it's called the Great Galilean Ministry. That's what it's known as. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give detailed accounts as to Jesus' actions and deeds during this Galilean ministry. John passes over all of those details, only mentioning the very first miracle and the last miracle in this time period. So I think it's helpful for us to have some sort of historical setting as to the events that take place between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, and Luke chapter 9 give us this historical setting. Here are some of the details. Jesus sent out his disciples into the towns and villages to preach and to heal the sick. And they went out doing that very thing. And they substantiated their preaching by the miracles that he had given them the power to do. They came back rejoicing. If you'll recall, that the demons had were subject to them. Jesus said, don't rejoice over this, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Then, Jesus' very close friend and forerunner, John the Baptist, was killed by that fox, Herod, Antipas. And we find that in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9 as well. It was during this time that Jesus went to the people and presented them with the truth of who he was and the opportunity that they had to receive him as their Lord and follow him. He healed their sick of their diseases and he preached the gospel of the kingdom to them as well.
After this, Jesus departed in a boat with his disciples to a secluded place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They needed rest and refreshment because they had been out preaching and working. And Jesus himself had gone through the villages preaching as well and healing diseases. Add to that physical tired tiredness the emotions that Jesus would have experienced by losing his cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist. You have a recipe for need of rest. However, that was not to be the case because as Jesus was there resting in With his disciples, he looked and saw a very large crowd of people coming to him. And they had, they had come around the shore to where he was. Jesus, having compassion on them, healed their sick. That is why they followed him. That is why they wanted to be with him. They, They were thrill-seekers. They were not interested in worship of Him. They didn't come to where He was because they loved Him for who He was. They came to Him to watch and to receive from Him. Isn't that just like people? All it takes is just a little bit of spectacular action, a little bit of tantalizing thing to happen, something that's above the norm, and people will flock to it. Not because they love the Lord, but because there's something going on that hits their senses. Something that they can get out of it. Notice in verse 2, It says, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. They saw the signs that he was doing. This indicates their intention. That word saw means they watched him like someone would watch a theatrical production. The imperfect tense of the word indicates that they saw him doing these miracles over and over, and they could not get enough of it. This happens today. Although although it's fake, people still flock to it. They wanted to get what he had to offer, but only on a physical level. It was in the midst of all this that the occasion of this miracle happened. What Jesus encountered after all of his supernatural works that he had performed among the people was fickle skepticism and an ever-increasing hostility from the religious leaders. Herod's murder of John the Baptist was evidence that the tide was and climate was changing. Now John's gospel is arranged in such a way 
as to give a specific theme. This is what John is trying to get across to his readers. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that in Him there is life for all who believe. That's John's theme. So John does not waste time giving so many details, but rather to substantiate what his purpose is, and that's to tell who Christ is. One can see the structure, even now, from just the few chapters that we have been in. For example, in chapter 1, Jesus is identified as the Messiah and begins to call his disciples to himself. In chapter 2, we see Jesus performing the first of his miracles as he turned water into wine and the cleansing of the temple. He is doing things that say, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. In chapter 3, he speaks of his sovereign mission to bring life to dead souls in his dialogue with Nicodemus by giving new birth. In chapter 4, we find him speaking to the Samaritan woman who believed in him and subsequently many of the people of the Samaritan city of Sychar. By the time we get to the end of chapter 5, the Jews are more intent than ever to find some way to kill Jesus because of his healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And that brings us to chapter 6. And from this standpoint, from this point on, Jesus is clearly moving on the path that will lead him to the cross so that he can become a substitute for sinners like you and me. His popularity has skyrocketed, but by the end of this chapter... We see many, if not most, of his disciples, quote-unquote disciples, abandoning him and never returning. This is what we might call the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. Without a doubt, what we see taking place here in these these first 15 verses of chapter 6 is one of the most recognized miracles that our Lord performed. It's called the feeding of the 5,000. It happens at a very crucial time as well, for it takes place near the time of the Passover. It's difficult for us to understand the full impact of what the Passover meant to the Jewish people. D.A. Carson, in his Commentary on John writes this. The Passover feast was to the Palestinian Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans. Well, that sets it in a little bit of perspective, does it not? Although I think the 4th of July doesn't mean as much to many Americans today as it once did. It was a rallying point for the intense nationalistic zeal. This goes some way to explaining their fervor that tried to force them to make Jesus king. 
The fact that the Passover was at hand sets an atmosphere of anticipation on the people. I mean, in their mind, this is the highlight of the year. Much like we would think of Christmas as the highlight of the year. Or Easter. The flesh of the Passover lamb was about to be eaten. The blood was about to be sprinkled. So Jesus took this opportunity to bring to them a discourse on the fact that he was the Passover bread, that his blood was the blood that would be sprinkled. What better way to illustrate this than to give the people bread by way of supernatural creation to satisfy their hunger. After all, God had given them the manna in the wilderness. This they understood. It was an opportunity to teach them the sufficiency of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now that title, The Feeding of the 5,000, is kind of a misnomer because really it was more like 20,000 people. Because Matthew chapter 14 verse 21 says that there were 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So it could have been more than 20,000. When it says he looked up and saw a large crowd, it uses the word megas, which is where we get our word mega. A mega crowd. It was a very large group of people. 20,000 probably plus. This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four gospel accounts that Jesus performed. No other miracle was as public as this one, nor was there any witnessed by so many people at one time. This miracle marks the height of Jesus' popularity among the people, even though that popularity was short-lived. The miracle, this miracle taught by way of illustration the sufficiency of Christ as the living bread which satisfies the souls of sinful men. All this shows the great significance and importance that this miracle holds in the ministry of Christ. So great was the response to this miracle that the people tried to force Jesus to be their king. That was not to be. Now the miracle took place on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee near Bethsaida. Luke describes it as a desert place. But not in the sense that it was barren. Because Mark records it that it had green grass. Matthew says that there was, John says there was much grass in the place. So it wasn't barren in the sense that it was a, a desert with no vegetation. It was, it was a desert place in the sense that it was apart from, it, uh, it was secluded. This is now the fourth sign that Jesus has given to prove his deity. In the midst of this was the ever increasing opposition of the Jews. And as the opposition grew and became more intense, Jesus spent less and less time in public and more time in private with his disciples. 
Until finally we come to chapter 13 and we see that Jesus is exclusively with his disciples until they take him before Pilate and before the Sanhedrin. Opposition was something that Jesus expected. It was something that he had already experienced. In Mark chapter 3, he was attacked and ridiculed by the Jews for healing a man's hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In Matthew 9, as he ate with publicans and sinners, he was scorned and mocked as one who had been contaminated by them. Finally, the greatest scorn came at the foot of the cross as the jeering crowd, many of whom he had healed of diseases, many of whom he had possibly fed at this miracle, scorned him and scoffed at him as he hung there bleeding and dying. One might expect opposition from hometown people who were jealous of the notoriety of their village carpenter. You might expect that. You might expect even opposition from a hostile, from hostile towns and villages who rejected the message of the kingdom. One might certainly expect opposition from wicked Herod who only cared for that which entertained him or that which tantalized his lustful cravings. But one would not expect that after all that had happened, after all they had experienced, that the disciples would exhibit two forms of opposition to the Lord's method of accomplishing His kingdom work from His disciples themselves. Everything in the Christian life is a test of our faith. Everything. It doesn't matter what happens to us. It doesn't matter what the circumstance. It does not matter. It is all a test of our faith in Christ to be our sufficiency. It was no different for these disciples who walked and followed Christ. Evening was approaching and the crowd hadn't eaten. So Jesus instigates a question to Philip about providing food for a crowd of 20,000 people. Imagine that. It would be like someone saying to you, you're sitting in the, the Twins Stadium downtown in the city, and someone says to you, uh, let's feed all these people. How are we going to do that? <laughs> An unbelievable task. So, why did he ask Philip? I mean, he singles Philip out. Well, John chapter 1, verse 44 and 12, 21 indicates that Philip was from Bethsaida, which was right there, a town right there on the northern shore. Maybe Philip, maybe he asked Philip because Philip was from that area, maybe Philip. You know, would be thinking, well, I know a place where we can get this or that or the other. Even then, there would be no place that could provide food of that amount that they needed to feed this enormous crowd. The point of Jesus' question 
was intended to show the disciples that this was an impossibility. But they didn't get it. To feed 20,000 hungry people would be a mammoth task. But nothing is impossible for God. And God was right there in the person of His Son. But notice the faithlessness of the disciples who are faced with this impossible task. They didn't have enough money to buy that amount of bread. And even if they did, there was no one that could supply it. So Jesus' question to Philip was not intended to discover what Philip was thinking. It was in, because Jesus already knew what he was thinking. Neither was it to work out some kind of a plan to feed these people. For no plan would work. What Jesus wanted then was what he wants now from his children. He he wanted their simple faith in his ability to do the impossible. His ability. But what do you and I do? When we come up against things that we are seemingly impossible or very unlikely, we begin to devise ways on our own how we can do it, how we can make it happen. And oftentimes we implement things that simply lead us astray from the Lord, not to Him. They could have said... Lord, we can't, we can't supply bread for this, all these people, but you can. Wouldn't that have been refreshing? Wouldn't that have been the ideal response? We can't do this. This is, in, Lord, Philip could have said, this is impossible. We can't do this, but look, we've seen, we have watched you do things that are impossible. You can do this. You just tell us what you want. They didn't do that. When faced with the question of how to feed the people, the disciples reply with indirect, questionable opposition. They hesitate. They did what most of us do. They hesitated with unbelief and made excuses as to why this could not happen. They said... 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to give each one a little bit. Do you know how that much that is? That's eight months worth of wages. Andrew appears on the outset as one who might be thinking a little bit differently. He said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. That sounds good. Lord, here's some food. But then he ruins it by saying, but what's that among so many? Why couldn't he have said, Lord, here's some little five little barley loaves and and two fish. You, You could multiply this and feed everybody. But he didn't say that. He's just like you and me. Thinking from the human perspective 
limiting what God can do. Another faithless statement. All this was to test the disciples because Jesus knew what he was going to do ahead of time. He knew what he would do. One might say Jesus is toying with them. But Jesus never engages in frivolous games with people. No, this was to teach them about His sufficiency, His ability to do what could not be done from human perspective. That He is the one who is capable for any and all circumstances in life. Testing is a part of life for the Christian. It never stops. It starts the moment that we believe and it goes until we draw our last breath. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let it do its work. Peter writes, In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the, resur- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, the thing that will glorify Him will be our faith in Him to do what we couldn't do. Everything else is but wood, hay, and stubble to be burned. The disciples, like us, were thinking and living by sight, not by faith. But now, let's not be too hard on them, because we're exactly like them. And we would have said the same things that they did. We shouldn't be so high and mighty and uppity that we would say, oh, I wouldn't have done what they did. Uh, Yes, you would. And so would I. Why, if you asked me to feed everybody here today by myself, I'd have to be saying, well, no, I don't know. Let me check, see how much money I've got. I don't know if the store's going to be able to provide what I want to give you, and I'd be work, trying to work it out. They had forgotten what Jesus had taught them earlier in Matthew chapter 6. Turn there with me if you would. Let's just remind ourselves of this. This is a great passage. And it ends, it ends in verse 33 with my wife's favorite verse. Start at verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not trying to make coverings for themselves. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus knows what people need. He knows. Mark records in chapter 6, verse 34, that when Jesus saw the crowd coming to Him, He felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He knows that we're just dumb sheep. We forget that sometimes. That the Lord knows those that are His and He knows how we think and He knows... The weaknesses of our flesh. This is a very different attitude than that of the disciples. If we follow the storyline, we see that the first solution to the problem of the crowd and their needs by the disciples was to just send them away. Listen to Mark 6.35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Let's send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside in the villages and buy themselves something to eat. Just get rid of them, Lord. Send them away. Don't want to deal with them. They're, they're hungry and they're, 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 In a bad mood, they need to eat. Send them away. But Jesus never sends people away. (laughs) And second then was Philip's words about not having enough money available to, to buy bread. And Andrew came along and talked about lack of supply. Finally, Jesus came through with the answer to the problem. Andrew's suggestion of the boy's lunch was the result of the Lord's command to go through the people and see if there was any food there. Something that I had overlooked all these years. I thought Andrew just sort of looked down and there's this boy with this lunch. That is not what happened. Jesus commanded them to go through the crowd, find out if there's any food. And Andrew found a boy with a lunch. Warren Wiersbe writes, The first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust Him to meet the need. When we look to our own resources, we put Christ on the back burner. Just uh, get behind me, Lord. I don't need you on this one. I've got, I've got this covered. Philip looked at the money box and said, no way. <laughs> we can't do this. The twelve looked at the supplies they had and said, no way. There's not enough. And the basic problem with both responses is, is that they looked at what they possessed and failed to look at Jesus and his, what he possessed, his power to answer this dilemma of feeding such a large crowd of people. It wasn't until the disciples confessed their own inadequacy that Jesus proceeded to demonstrate his adequacy. That's what you and I need to do. 
And I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I am terrible at doing this. Because I think I'm adequate. I can do this. I'll figure out a way. And I leave the Lord just out of the picture. Just, just leave me alone, Lord, and I'll, I'll work it out. When I should be saying, Lord, I, I don't want to have to figure this out. You lead me in this. You show me what your will is in this. And I will do my best to obey you. And then he will do what he does best. He will do the good thing for you. The best thing for you. Even if you don't think it is the best. Jesus' power to solve circumstantial problems and meets needs has not changed. He is still the same today as he was then. We should take from this then that he is more than able to supply our physical needs. But even more important than that, he is able to supply our spiritual needs as well. I want to close with a a quote from Arthur Pink who gives very practical advice with regard to this. Look at what he, listen to what he says. What happened to Philip is, in principle and essence, happening daily in our lives. A trying or trial, if not difficult situation, confronts us, and we meet them constantly. They come not by accident or by chance. Instead... They are each arranged by the hand of the Lord. They are God's testings of our faith. They are sent to prove us. Let us be very simple and practical. A bill comes unexpectedly. How are we to meet it? The morning's mail brings us tidings which plunge us into an unlooked for perplexity. How are we to get out of it? A cog slips in the household machinery, which threatens to, to wreck the daily routine. What shall we do? An unanticipated demand is suddenly made upon us. How shall we meet it? Now, dear friends, how do such experiences find us? Do we, like Philip and Andrew did, look at our resources? Do we rack our minds to find some solution? Or do we... Or do our first thoughts turn to the Lord Jesus, who has often, so often helped us in the past? Here, right here, is the test of our faith. Oh, dear one, have we learned to spread each difficulty as it comes along before God? Have we formed the habit of instinctively turning to Him? What is your feebleness in comparison to His power? What is your emptiness in comparison to his ocean fullness? Nothing then look, nothing look daily then to him in simple faith, resting on his sure promise. My God shall supply all of your need. Ah, you may answer. It is easy to offer such advice, but far, it is far from easy to act on it. And that is true. Yes, of yourself it is impossible. You need, and your need and my need is to ask for faith, to re, 
to plead for grace, to cry unto God for such a sense of, in such a sense of helplessness that we shall lean on Christ and on Him alone. Thus, ask and wait and you shall find Him as good as His word. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's what we need. Because like Arthur Pink says, these things come on us every day. All the time. Let us not lean to our own understanding. But let us in all of our ways acknowledge him. And he will bring it to pass. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to gather, to sing and fellowship and pray and and to look into your word and see this great message you've given us from this miracle of feeding that multitude that day. You are sufficient for these things. You are the one that has all the power to answer every need according to your will. Help us, Lord, to resign ourselves to that will. That we might have peace. That we might have faith. That we might have a reward that will not fade away. It's more precious than gold. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.